Revelation chapter 10. You know, as you're making your way there, just by way of introduction to the text, you know, it was exactly two months ago today. It was the day after Christmas Day, and a guy by the name of Jimmy Groover, who owns a gun shop in Georgia, well, man, that day changed his life. He was robbed at gunpoint two months ago today. Um, the guys came into his store. They're screaming, everybody down or we're going to kill you. Uh, there's a video of it. It's on social media. It's blown up. Millions of people have looked at this video. Maybe you've seen it. And rather than hit the ground, rather than give up, rather than surrender, rather than to trust his life to people who he's convinced are going to kill him, Jimmy grabbed a gun on his side and four seconds later it was all over. One of the robbers was shot dead on the ground and the other was running for his life. And you know, I got to confess, my immediate reaction, and maybe yours if you've seen the video, my immediate reaction was a reaction of, well, immense satisfaction, really. It was like sweet justice is done. But truly, then, there's another emotion, because it's bittersweet. And the other emotion, quite frankly, is, is one of sorrow. Because there in front of your eyes, within a four-second span, you watch a man's life end, right there. I mean, the man is clearly dead before he hit the floor, and it's bittersweet. It's, it's sweet in the fact that justice is served and that, and that you know, the, Mr. Gruber gets another day with his kids and with his grandkids, um, but it's bitter in the fact that he now has to live forever with the knowledge that he took a life. And, and this robber's family... Regardless of the fact of, of, you know, how healthy or not his family was or, or his problems, well, they're now deprived of a, of a son, of a brother, of a cousin, a nephew, perhaps. And, and so, so it, it, it's bittersweet. Sweetness in the sense that justice is served, bitter in the sense that, well, just the cost of that justice being served. Now, I tell you that story by way of introduction because when we read Revelation chapter 10, it's the same dynamic. We have the sweetness of God's justice being served, but all at once there's a bitterness in what that justice actually looks like. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, we continue. It says, I saw the Apostle John saying here, Still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like the pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, the book of Revelation, Revelation literally means apocalypse. We think of tragedy and fires and brimstone and all of this stuff, but apocalypse really means unveiling. And what we have here ultimately is the unveiling of Jesus Christ and his plan for the end of the, of the earth. 
And there's a lot of symbolism as we read through Revelation. It's, it, it's sort of written in picture language. And so just on face value, sometimes it's hard to digest. Maybe you're here as a guest of someone today. You haven't been going through us, through the series. And so, you know, it might seem you know, just a little hard to understand. Let's start off with, gosh, this mighty angel. Who is this mighty angel? What's he all about? That's debated. Uh, amongst different Bible scholars, um, but the preponderance of belief um, is that this is actually a picture of Jesus Christ, and, and, I, and I'm persuaded that, that this is a, a good picture of Jesus Christ. Um, first of all, we see him described as being mighty and coming down to earth from heaven. He's also clothed in a cloud, and you see in Bible uh, or in, in biblical terms, clouds are routinely used in connection with the presence of the Lord. Um, and the word used here for cloud is specific to a heavenly cloud in the original language. So um, there's another clue that this might be Jesus Christ. Um, also, we see another majestic symbol in that he has a rainbow. On his head, and this isn't a half rainbow as we associate them. This is a full rainbow, exactly like the rainbow that we saw uh, in Revelation chapter four around God's throne. Uh, and so, this is around his head, and so the picture is a halo around his head. This is where we get the idea of halos in paintings and so on down through the ages. And so, uh, another majestic symbol that would be associated with the Lord. And as well, John says that his face was like the sun. Um, in Revelation chapter 1, when John saw the first vision of Jesus, and he describes him there as his face shining uh, uh, in full strength like the sun. So again, similar uh, language here. And as well, in Revelation chapter 1, when John described Jesus, he said that his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and here he says his feet are like pillars of fire. So the language is consistent. So again, clues showing us that perhaps, in fact, this is Jesus Christ. Another clue that we find in the second verse is that he's got this little book in his hand. The original language in the Greek, it's, it's the, the, the word is, is biblion. Um, this is the same word that we saw back in Revelation chapter 5 uh, when the father had the book, then he gave it to his son and Jesus took it in his hand. And the text here seems to imply that these books are one in the same. And so again, the clues are mounting up. And then we see there um, that he sets his feet one on land and one on the sea. This is a picture of power and having reign over all of the earth. And so again, uh, consistent with the clues adding up, this is Jesus. We see in verse 3, he has the voice of a lion. And of course, we know Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, uh, and so not only that, but his voice is echoed by seven thunders, and thunder is also the multiple accounts in Scripture where God's voice thunders from heaven, and the number of se seven is very telling because seven biblically is the number of perfection or completion, and so this word comes out, and it's perfect, it's complete. And so all of these clues together, we put together, and we go, wow, this is a picture of Jesus. 
There's another uh, clue that Donald, Donald Barnhouse brings out in his commentary on the book of Revelation, which is kind of cool. Um, he's, he points out that the word is, <coughs> in verse 10, or verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, I saw, saw still another mighty angel, and he says that there's a few instances in the book of Revelation where that word another is used. The first one uh, is in Revelation chapter 7 verse 2, where another angel acts as a prophet, um, commanding the four angels to hold back God's judgment until the 144,000 are sealed. And then next, this word another is used in Revelation 8 verse 5, where another angel acts as a priest, uh, taking fire from the altar and throwing it to the earth. And then finally, here in Revelation 10, verse 1, we see another mighty angel, and he's acting as a king, standing sovereignly uh, upon uh, the earth, ruling over the earth, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. And so, We have prophet, we have priest, and we have king in these revelations of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, throughout the Bible, we see that, prophet, priest, and king. So in all likelihood, we put all these clues together, and we say, well, wow, this is a picture of Jesus Christ. We continue, verse 4, it says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Now, if you've been with us, you will recall when John gave, or when Jesus gave this vision to John on the island of Patmos, he gave him specific instructions. He said there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, to write down the things that he saw. And in the same chapter, just a few verses later in verse 19, he directed John to write down not only the things that you have seen, but also the things which are and the things which will take place after this. But here now, he gets a different instruction. He tells him not to write the response of the seven thunders, uh, what they say in response to the things that, 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 that he has said, his voice being like a lion. And, and we're not given the specifics here. As a matter of fact, it's been sealed for the future. It has been withheld from us. Now let me just pause right there and state the obvious. And that is this, that God does not reveal everything to us. God doesn't tell us everything. We don't always get the answers that we're looking for. God doesn't, God doesn't always give them to us in his word. Sometimes the Bible is silent where we would like it not to be silent, but it is silent on certain issues and we are left scratching our heads saying, well, you know, what about that? It doesn't, it doesn't give me any indication there. I don't know, you know, what's going on. And oftentimes God is silent in our lives, isn't he? And we want to know, God, why are you silent? Why aren't you speaking to me? Why, you know, why have you left me out here in limbo? Why did I get cancer? Why, why didn't God protect me from my abuser? Why, why didn't he heal my mom? Why uh, did he allow my child to die? God oftentimes is silent. And we, in those moments, can be despairing. And we can be troubled, but we need to understand that just as we as parents don't always give our children all of the information, 
God doesn't always give us all of the information. Now, I've discovered in life that as I simply trust God, as a loving father, that, well, you know what? Today's pain typically translates into tomorrow's gain. We see through the windshield of our life today, and God is silent, and it's painful. And so often in my life, and I'm sure in your life, in past instances where God has been silent, that, that you know, he doesn't always, sometimes he's just silent, you go through it, and there's a, you know, maybe 20, 30 years have transpired, and you're like, I still don't know. But, but in so many experiences, what happens is that as the windshield events become rearview mirror events, that there they crystallize in the rearview mirror, and in the rearview mirror of life, I can go, well, now that makes sense. I understand how God was working that event together for good in my life. And so what happens then is the truth of Romans 8.28 plays itself out in our life so often that, that you know, God works all things together for the good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. But a lot of times, God, in working those events out, well, in the present, there's silence on God's part. And, and maybe that applies to you. Maybe today, you're going through a time where God has been silent in your life. And of course, you know, the regular disclaimers apply. Sometimes God is silent because he told us what to do and we didn't do it. And God's like, I ain't going to tell you again. I already told you what to do. You go do that. Go do the last thing I told you to do. And sometimes that's the stickler. That's the issue. Sometimes, you know, God is silent in our life because I've got unconfessed sin that I'm hanging on to. And God ain't going to speak until, you know, we deal with, you know, this issue that's in my life. And so there's just a couple of disclaimer examples of when God is silent. But oftentimes, God is silent. You haven't done anything wrong. It's just that you're going through life. And God has said, this is an event that is going to be revealed yet in your future. But right now, I'm not going to reveal it to you. I'm not going to show it to you. I remember years ago when I, my wife and I, we planted Revival Christian Fellowship, our first church. And when we planted the church, you know, there's like four of us in our living room. And, and then by God's grace, over the years, he just blessed and just kept adding daily to the church such as should be saved. And so, you know, 15 years into it, we're like 6,500 people and just things are incredible. And one day in particular was an Easter service and I'm standing there, and just people are, it's the altar call. People are getting saved, and it's just this strong, powerful moving of God's Spirit. And just scores of people just coming forward in repentance and tears. It was beautiful. <clears throat> and as I stood there, and as I took it all in, and just a sea of people, and in my mind's eye, well, what happened was I just started to remember the early days. God, God immediately took me back in my mind's eye to when there was four of us in our living room, to when there was maybe 14 of us in our living room, to maybe, you know, when we're now at 40 people. And, the, and he just begins to show me the days of small things in my mind's eye. And what God began to show me, you hear, and I've heard people teach this sometimes, maybe you have, when people talk about God revealing things, and, you know, basically there's the saying that's out there of, hey, you know what, God doesn't show you everything because you couldn't handle it. 
And, and, and I've always went, you know, when people say that, I'm like, oh, come on, give me a break. You couldn't handle it, like, like you know, you know. And, and yet, in this moment, <coughs> what God showed me was, you know what, Ted? If I would have shown you what I was doing, what I was going to do, you couldn't have handled it. Had I shown you in the days of small things, had I shown you in the days of, you know, the struggling when you were the guy that was getting there to set up Easter service the day before and working all night and camping out to watch all the gear and then working all day on Easter Sunday and, you know, maybe 40, 50 people showing up. And if I would have shown you 6,500 people yet in the future, I think, Ted, in the moment, in the days of small things, you would have been looking past the work that I wanted to do then. And you would have been looking forward to the work that I was going to do yet in the future. And so, you know, I didn't reveal that to you. wasn't going to reveal that to you. All you knew was that we've got 40 people to minister to and it might only be 40 people and you're going to pour yourself into them. And this, and this is all it is. And so there are things that are, <coughs> excuse me, yet in the future that God doesn't reveal to us, that he isn't going to show to us. The psalmist said this, the psalmist said, Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. Now, that phrase, wait patiently, it kind of sounds like this serene thing, doesn't it? Just wait patiently. I don't know what you have in your mind's eye, but maybe it's just the picture of, you know, oh, Lord... I'm just going to wait patiently. That's not the way that reads in the original language. That, what we translate wait patiently, actually in the original language, it means to dance, it means to twist, it means to writhe about. And <clears throat> here's the picture. You ever hit yourself with a, with a hammer? You know how you turn into a boogie and fool when you hit yourself in the, in the, and you, you dance and you're writhing about? That's the picture here. And what the, the idea is, is that, man, <coughs> these events today might be just driving me crazy, making me writhe about and dancing about, but you know what? I need to be still in the presence of the Lord. I need to wait patiently for Him in the midst of that condition, in the midst of that scenario. And I wonder, maybe that's just the price of admission for you today. Maybe God has just spoken to you just through just a random application of you know what sometimes God is silent and maybe in your life today that's just it you need to be reminded God's on the throne he's silent in your life and he's silent well listen because he knows what he's doing but he does for whatever reason he, he doesn't want you to know what he's doing right now he doesn't want you to see exactly what is coming yet in the future hey be silent don't write that down you just need to be still and wait in, in, the, in the moment on the Lord, trusting in Him. In Isaiah, um, it's a funny thing going on. It's Isaiah chapter 30. God is lamenting it in, in, in this portion of Isaiah. He's, he's just, his people won't heed the warnings of his prophets. They, they basically, <clears throat> God's people are telling the prophets, we don't want to hear your gloom and doom message. 
Now that happens to be God's word to them, but they don't want to hear it. They want all the good news. They tell the prophets, tell us everything's going to be great. Tell us, I, tell us I look good. Tell us, you know, every, it's kind of like what I tell my wife on Sunday, Sunday afternoon after church. I'm like, look, a, after church, I don't want to hear anything about the message. All I want you to tell me after church was, man, that was great. You can tell me Monday morning how horrible it was, but, but Sunday afternoon, just tell me it was awesome, right? And, and in Isaiah 30, this is basically what God's dealing with is that his people tell the prophets, all we want is good news. We don't want any bad news. So here's his response. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength. Take a walk with that. In quietness and confidence is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will get our help from Egypt. God's not answering quick enough. We we were going to engineer things ourselves. They will give us swift horses for riding into battle. But the only swiftness that you're going to see is the swiftness of your enemies chasing you. God's like, I'm not going to bless that. He says, he continues, he says, so the Lord must wait for you to come to him. So he can show you his love and compassion for the Lord is a faithful God. And here it is, blessed are those who wait for his help. In other words, we have to wait for him on his timing and on his plan. Well, here we are. God tells John, look, don't write what the thunder said. Keep it silent. I'm not going to reveal that right now. <clears throat> but it's interesting what, what the Lord goes on to say here sort of maybe gives us a clue of, of, the, of just at least the general address of what the seven thunders did say. Um, we continue there in verse 5. He says, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven. Depending on your translation, some of your translations say he raised his right hand up to heaven. That's the position of taking an oath. And so he raised up his hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven uh, and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the, pros- the, the, his servants, the prophets. So, what we have here is this angel now raises his right hand and he swears an oath. Um, and, and as he's swearing this oath, he's saying, look, there's not going to be any more delay. And he, and, he, and he attests that the mystery is about to be revealed. Now understand this. When the Bible speaks of mystery, it's not in the sense like we might think about mystery. When we think about a mystery, we think, well, that's a mystery. I got to figure out what the answer to this is. I got to assimilate all the clues and I have to solve the mystery. When the Bible talks about a mystery, what the Bible is saying is that a mystery isn't something that nobody knows. It's, It's something that nobody could know unless God reveals it. In other words, when the Bible talks about a mystery, it's not, hey, if you're smart enough, you'll figure it out. It's, look, you'll never figure this out until God chooses to reveal this to you and open your eyes. That's what the Bible means when it talks about a mystery. Um, And the Bible has, it talks about several mysteries that are revealed by God. 
In Romans 11, it says there that the ultimate conversions of the Jews, well, it calls it a mystery. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 says that God's purpose for the church is called a mystery. Uh, The bringing in of the fullness of the Gentiles is called a mystery, again, in Romans chapter 11. Um, The living presence of Jesus in believers is called a mystery in Colossians chapter 1 and 2. And the gospel itself is called a mystery of Christ in Colossians chapter 4. And so here's the idea here. Here's what's being conveyed. It says, ultimately, look, God is unfolding or revealing, listen, his resolution of all things and finishing his plan of all the ages. In other words, what Jesus is testifying to here is he's saying, listen, everything from the beginning of creation in the book of Genesis to all of the end events of the book of Revelation, they're all being revealed, they're all being done, it's all wrapping up. And God's revealing his plan from the, from the beginning to the end. Verse 8. <coughs> it says, Then the voice <clears throat> which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angels, of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so I went to the angel, and I said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. In Revelation chapter 5, we see a scroll. Again, the father has the scroll, and he gives it to his son, Jesus Christ. That word is biblion. We've looked at that. And, you know, this biblion is what's in the father's hand. Now, in Revelation chapter 4 through 7... The seven seals of that Biblion are opened and it reveals God's plan to punish and evict Satan. And as this scroll opens, then unfolds the rest of the events of the revelation through chapter 6 through 19. This is what's known as the tribulation period. Now during this time, we see three sets of seven. Um, And we've looked at many of them. We see seven seals. We see seven trumpets. And we see seven bowls, um, bowls of God's wrath being poured out. And every single one, as a seal is broken, there's a corresponding action from God. The righteous God taking a sovereign uh, action of wrath against an unrepentant world. Now listen, you've got to understand, it's God's heart that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. We're going to see in a little bit, he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And this is what's at the heart of the sweetness and the bitterness because for God, it's sweet to have things dealt in justice because he's a good God. He's a loving God. And as a good, loving father, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's long-suffering, but also being a righteous father, a righteous judge, he would not be good, he wouldn't be righteous if he didn't deal with with evil, if he didn't deal with sin. He has to do both. And so he he loves us, he offers to us his grace and his mercy in Jesus Christ. He cries out to everyone, he cries out to you, he cries out to me, 
I don't want you to go to hell. People say, how can a good God send people to hell? How can, how can a God who's loving send people to hell? Listen, God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. God has done everything he can possibly do to save you and me from going to hell. He sent his very own son to die on a cross, and he was innocent. He'd never done anything wrong. He died on the cross for mankind. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And if we confess our sins, the Bible says that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what God wants for you. He's not, you know, some evil God up there in heaven with a magnifying glass and you're the ant that he wants to fry. That's not his heart. You're a child he wants to save. One of the guys dedicating his child up here today talked about the, the, the prodigal son. And what do we see? The example of the prodigal son is that the father watched daily for his son's return, intently looking and as far down the road as he could possibly see. And every day he watched intently at that point to say, when will my son come home? And when his son came back, he didn't chastise him. He didn't berate him. He didn't say, you totally blew it. And now you got to do a bunch of stuff to get back in my good graces. No, his son decided... I blew it and I had it better with my dad and he came back in repentance to his father and his father received him with open arms. And today, that's how God wants to receive you. Maybe you've come here today and your relating to God has been on the basis of, well, you know, if, if I do good enough, then he'll accept me. That's not God. God says, look, I understand that you are a sinner by nature and by choice. And because I love you, I don't want to leave you that way. But listen, God just says to you today, just cry out to me, I'll take care of it. Cry out to me, come to me, all you who thirst, and I will give you living water. This is the, this is the, this is the heart of God. Today, if, if, you're, if your mindset is, <clears throat> wow, you know, I, yeah, I mean, God's good and all, but, you know, he could never receive me because I've done too much. Mm-mm. There's nothing that you can do, the Bible says, to separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's only one thing you can do. That's to reject the only substitute that's been made for you, and that's Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin in your place. Yes, you're a nature by sinner and by choice, and so am I. But Jesus loves you, and he gave his life for you. And the Father <clears throat> says to you today that you can turn to him, you can cry out to him, you can come to him. You can receive that forgiveness. You can receive that cleansing. God wants to give that to you today. And none of that is in my notes, and I've got to figure out where I was. <laughs> so we see the, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. These are all... The, the, as, the, as God's wrath is being poured out on an unrepentant world. And the first six seals come off in order, and then there's a pause. 
And then the seventh seal is broken and it reveals the contents of the, of the deed, the little book that Jesus had, the title deed of the earth. And this begins the next set of seven, the seven trumpets. And with each trumpet, there's more judgment that's coming out against an unrepentant world. And by the way, all along throughout this process, God is still trying to seek and save the lost, saving as many people as he possibly can. Yes, he's, ta- he's raptured the church, the church goes up into heaven, but there's still people being saved left and right throughout all of this. And then what happens is after the, the six trumpets go, then there's, there's another pause, and that's where we're at right here, the pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And then the seventh trumpet is going to blow and this will usher in the seven bowl judgments. And altogether, this is a seven-year process of the judgment of, uh, and the, the outpouring of God's wrath. In Revelation chapter 10, it picks up during the pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And this pause is going to last a while. It's going to take us into next week, into chapter 11, all the way into to verse 15 of chapter 11 when the seventh trumpet blows. And when that seventh trumpet blows, it's the beginning of God's final judgment upon the earth. But right now, God gives us this pause. And during this pause, he gives to John this book that's now open. And, and, and here's what it reveals. This book now open, it reveals the fullness of his wrath to come and the brutal bull judgments that are, that are yet remaining and, and, and the final dealing with, and he says in verse 11, many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And at first this is sweet because it's sweet justice, but then it's bitter because God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, hear the words of God. He says, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Now listen to the cry of this father. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? And he tells John, listen, you got to eat this. You have to chew on it. It has to become part of you. My words have to go deep into your heart, deep into your soul. This is the same commandment that he gave to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3. It's the same commandment that he gave to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15. It's the same commandment that he gives here to John in Revelation 10. You got to eat my words. They got to become part of you. And listen, this is the same desire that God has for you and me. It's the same commandment that he gives to us, that we have to chew on his word, that, that he wants us to, to, to really fully digest the implications of his word. We take it to heart. And we tell other people. Jesus said this. He said, I'm the bread of life. He told his disciples, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. He, he, he spoke the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John and told us, listen, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the, the one that's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The psalmist said this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Listen, a casual glance into this Word is not enough. An intellectual understanding of this word is not enough. It's not going to do. 
God calls us to consume these truths, to ingest his words. Why? Because God's word is your only hope. It is our only hope. It is a compass for living life. I had a conversation recently with a gal on Facebook. Somebody had posted about the needfulness of going to church. And it was a, it was a friendly exhortation. It was just saying, listen, if you're a believer, don't neglect this. Let's get together. Let's come to church where we can be built up and encouraged and, you know, love one another. <clears throat> and somebody, you know, it's been said if you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. And somebody, you know, says to this gal, well, you know what, I, I get, you know, my, I don't have to come to church for that. My church basically is serving God out in the world. And, and I tried, I couldn't help myself, but I just, I, I, you know, I, I just tried to lovingly, pointer to God's word. And so, you know, I, I, in, in Hebrews, it says that we are not to neglect the gathering together of the saints, as is the manner of some, but we need to gather together. I'm paraphrasing it, but basically it says we need to do this. We need to be together as a church. And, and all the more so, it says, as you see the day approaching, as you see that, that man, we are the Titanic and we're going down and Jesus is coming back, we need to clean together even more. So I, so I share that scripture with her and I just said, look, we have to do this and we need to understand that why it's so critically important because it also says there that, that not only do we need to gather together, but it says we need to examine one another. Same section of scripture, we need to examine one another. The word that's used, it's the word scopio. It means to like examine you with a, with a microscope. Now, we don't like that. We, we turn all Wizard of Oz when people want to examine us. We're like, oh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know. Or we get all biblical. Oh, take the log out of your own eye, you know, before you look at the splinter in mine. Yes, Jesus did say that. But the Bible also says that we have to be lovingly accountable to one another and put ourselves into fellowship and be connected in such a way that I can look at your life and I can go, brother, I love you too much to let you do what you do when you're in sin. Let me encourage you. Let me exhort you. This is the godly way. And you need to do that in my life. And that's what the Bible says that we need. And so this conversation that I, that I have on Facebook is a conversation where I'm simply saying, look, uh, you know, I, I'm not in a position to judge your experience as it pertains to the church, but I am in a position to say what the Bible says about our needing to go to church. And so regardless of whether my emotions or my experience tells me to do something, listen, the fog of life is just that. It's a fog. And our only hope in the fog of life is to look at the compass of the Word of God and understand what God feels about a certain subject, what God tells us to do in a certain situation, in a certain circumstances, because in the fog of life, I can be guaranteed I'm going to make the wrong choice. And you're going to make the wrong choice, but God will tell us this is the way you need to go. So we need to ingest His Word. We need to take it in. We need to hear what God has to say, and we need to feel about things the way that God feels about things, so that it becomes a part of us, so that we can taste and see that He's good, and so we can feel what He feels in our guts. Listen, here's what we got to understand. John was given this revelation... For us, for the church. I got to admit, we read this, as you study through it, 
depending on what your eschatology is, basically what your view of end times is and doctrine about that. But, but essentially, hey, the church is, is in all likelihood up in heaven right now in this period of time in Revelation. They, you know, I don't know if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, if you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. Listen to the rest of the series. <clears throat> Maybe you're pan-trib. You think, hey, you know, it'll all pan out in the end. I don't know. I come from a pre-trib eschatology, and so man, my, my, my attitude is, look, what's going to happen is at some point, soon, God's going to go, everybody out of the pool, and he's going to take his church out of the earth before he pours his wrath out on an unrepentant earth. So we're going to be up in heaven, and the temptation then is to read something like this and go, well, why should I really care? I mean, I care, but I really don't care that much because I'm going to be in heaven. That doesn't really concern me. It does. And the reason it concerns you is because God gave John this revelation so that he'd write it down so that you and I would understand it. And part of understanding it is to get his heart. And so when he eats the book, and it's sweet because of God's justice is sweet, but it's bitter because there's a bunch of people that are dying. And God wants you to understand there's people that you know, there's people that you live with, there's people that you work with, there's family members, there's friends, people in your circle of influence who are going to hell. And God says, I care about that. Do you care about that? Because I want you to care about that. Man, one of the big takeaways from this is we got to fill in our guts the way God feels in his gut. I close with this illustration. A pastor, given his message one Sunday morning, and, he, and first words out of his mouth, he says, listen, i got three points today. He says, my first point is that there's millions of people that are going to hell. And then he said this. He said, my second point is that some of you sitting here today don't give a damn. And then he just was silent and he let that sink in. And then he said, my third point is that it breaks my heart that there's a lot of you here today that are really struggling with the fact that I just said the word damn. And you don't care as much about the people that are going to hell. We have to know that God's given this this revelation. And that just as he commanded John to ingest this word. And to let it assimilate and become part of him. That he wants you to let his word assimilate and become part of you. So that you can feel the way that he feels.